Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Welcome to On The Rock, God's unchanging word for changing times with Dr. Camille Majdali, Director of Teach All Nations Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Camille lived and studied in the Middle East, served as a principal of a leading Bible college and now travels the world teaching God's word. He has an extraordinary knowledge of the Bible and a dynamic ability to make God's truth come alive in a real, practical way. This episode of On The Rock will give you keys to survive and succeed in the days ahead by hearing and doing the words of Jesus. It's a wonderful start to learning the New Testament. In today's program, we're going to continue to build a foundation of understanding the Gospel of Matthew. Our series is entitled, The Kingly Messiah, Understanding the Gospel of Matthew, Part 1, a verse-by-verse audio commentary with printable PDF notes, which is part of the larger Understanding the Bible series. Welcome. We're continuing to learn the background to Matthew. And just remember, for those that may not have heard, a quick little review. We've learned that this first book of the New Testament was written by one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, Matthew Levi. He's the one who was at the receipt of customs in Capernaum, Jesus comes to him and gives him a two-word command, follow me, and he did. And thank God that he did. We know that the theme of Matthew is basically to talk about Jesus, to prove that he is the promised Messiah, he is the son of David, and Messiah, son of David, are synonymous. But more than that, he is the seed of Abraham, that according to Genesis 12, verse 3, will bring blessing to the world. And indeed, Jesus has done precisely that. The Gospel of Matthew presents many portraits of Jesus, or titles, like the sower of seed, the beloved, the friend of sinners, the bridegroom, physician, master, son of God, Nazarene, governor, king of the Jews, Emmanuel. And we know that this Gospel is very important. It has distinct features, not only 29 Old Testament quotes, 39 references of the Old Testament alluded to in Matthew, 13 times he talks about this was happened that it might fulfill, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets. The genealogy of Jesus is important. The Sermon on the Mount is distinct, although it is mentioned afresh in Luke 2. And then the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, where Jesus speaks on the Mount of Olives, about the last days. We've been also looking at the background of the Gospels, the Hebrew background, which we spend a fair bit of time on, but also the Greek background. Just remember, Hebrew background especially. There are the Herodians, the Roman puppet regime, ruling over Israel from 37 BC to 100 AD. With the Herodians, I should actually flesh them out a little. There's Herod the Great, ruling from 37 to 4 BC. He was the one that built many fine buildings and cities and all, but his masterpiece was the temple at Jerusalem. He was a very capable manager, but he was utterly ruthless, paranoid, and despotic. I've heard him called Herod the Horrible, not the Great. Now, any man that will kill his own wife, because she's so beautiful, he's afraid that other men might get her, or afraid of his own sons who wanted to be on the throne, so he had them killed too. Does it give you any idea why he didn't hesitate to kill the toddlers of Bethlehem, 
two years old or younger, according to the time the wise men had pointed out. The Holy Family had to flee from the land of Israel because of Herod's temperament, his murderous intentions, and they stayed until he died, which was in 4 BC. He was succeeded not by one, but three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Herod Philip, and they had different parts of the Holy Land. They weren't kings like he was. They were more like tetrarchs. Archelaus didn't last very long. He was very inept. He had all his father's faults and none of his gifts. So he was replaced by the Romans. They had direct rule on Judea. In fact, they annexed Judea and made it a Roman province. That's why instead of having a Herod, they had a procurator. That's where Pontius Pilate comes in. Antipas ruled in Galilee, and so he was the leader that ruled most of the time that Jesus lived, most of it. And he was the one Jesus faced in Jerusalem during his passion. Herod Philip married Herodias, and Herodias left Herod Philip, married Antipas, and this caused John the Baptist to speak out and to lose his head. Oh, there's more for me to share. There's Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, and from there we're going to learn about the Roman background too the New Testament. While I'm on the topic, let's just finish off with the Herods. Herod the Great is the founding father of this relatively short-lived dynasty of 130 years. The three Herods after him, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Remember, Archelaus is in Judea, but he's banished. Archelaus is number one. Number two is Antipas. He's in Galilee, and you know, he rules for 44 years, but he doesn't die in office. He's replaced by his nephew, Agrippa I. It's actually fairly outrageous what happened, but we'll get to that in a moment. Herod Philip ruled in the Golan. So Archelaus, Judea, Herod Antipas, Galilee, Philip in Golan. And that's why you have a place called Caesarea Philippi. Herod The great built Caesarea Maritima on the coast, but Caesarea Philippi is in the Golan. It's near there where Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, There's a whole story behind that. We'll save it when we get to Matthew 16. Antipas marries Herodias, Philip's wife. John the Baptist speaks out, and he's eventually beheaded because he offended Herodias so much. And then what happens is Philip... And Archelaus are gone. Antipas remains. Their nephew, Agrippa I, becomes friends of Caesar. And Caesar likes him so much, he says, I'm going to give you the whole land, the whole land of Israel. You will be king just like your grandfather, Herod the Great, was king. Now, think about it. Here's Antipas, faithfully serving Rome, not Israel, but Rome. For 44 years, he's booted out by his own nephew. And his nephew gets an honor he never got. The nephew gets the whole land, and he gets to be called the king. We can read more about this king, Agrippa I, in Acts chapter 12. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He seized Peter. He was going to execute Peter, but Peter was miraculously delivered because the church was ever praying for Peter. And then he is struck down by the Lord in Caesarea, and that's all recorded in Acts 12, as well as in the historical writings of Josephus Flavius of the first century. Then you have the son of Agrippa I. That's Agrippa II. He's not given the whole land to rule. I think he's more or less given his uncle Philip's place, 
But what he does get to do is meet the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. The audience before Herod was Agrippa II. And remember that after Paul had spoken, Agrippa II, along with Festus, said, This man has done nothing deserving of imprisonment or even execution. We could have released him had he not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa II rules until 100 AD, and that's the end of the lineage of the Herods. Now let's go to the Roman background of the New Testament. The Roman background is simple. They took over where the Greeks led off, or how should I say, they were the heirs and successors to the ancient Greeks. Hence, that's why we have the term Greco-Roman. Rome went from being a republic to an empire. It's interesting because Herod the Great was involved in this, well, a little bit down the road. He was friends of Mark Anthony. There was a great turmoil in this transition from republic to empire. Anthony lost and Octavian won. So here's Herod there in Judea, and he was backing the wrong horse. But he somehow manages to be sycophantic enough that he wins over Octavian, lands on his feet, and gets to continue his rule from the time Rome went from republicanism to imperialism. And that's, of course, something that impacts the New Testament as well. Rome eventually, after becoming an empire, it had Roman roads, which united the empire, Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which made the empire relatively stable. And of course, they had a Roman emperor. Now, the emperor in the empire was often considered divine, and this would cause conflicts with Jews and eventually with the infant Christian church. Remember that in places that were directly ruled by Rome, such as Judea, after the disastrous reign of Archelaus in 6 AD, procurators or governors were appointed. And as they proceeded, they became more and more corrupt. So that helped to spawn the first Jewish revolt of AD 66 to 70. So either you had the Herodians ruling for Rome or you had the procurators ruling, or you had both. So in the time of the ministry of Jesus, the Romans were ruling Judea, but Herod Antipas was ruling in Galilee. And that's where we begin. Now, key verses of the Gospel of Matthew. I want to propose two sections of key verses. The first is Matthew 16, verses 15 to 19. The second is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Remember, key verses summarize the entire Bible book. Matthew 16, 15 to 19. And it reads, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is Matthew sixteen fifteen to 19, and I might just add a couple of things. Not only did God open Peter's eyes to the full identity of Jesus, 
that yes, he is son of David, but he's also son of God. By calling him Christ, that means he's anointed, the anointed one, to be precise, to sit on David's throne. Of course, he's not just anointed to sit on David's throne, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit and power to go about doing good, healing the sick, casting out devils, raising the dead. That's how anointed Jesus was and still is. The other segment of verses is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It's basically the very end of the gospel. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is what we call the Great Commission. And as I often say, this is the only homework assignment God ever gave the church. It's not just evangelism, as much as we believe in it. It's evangelism, yes, but it's more. It's evangelism and discipleship. In other words, bringing them to Christ and building people up in Christ. There is nothing more important the church can do than that. Now, the church can be involved in other things, but never lose sight of the commission. It must be our highest priority because it was Jesus's last command. In fact, as one person aptly put it, Jesus's last command should be our first priority, to which we should all be able to say, amen. All right, those are the key verses. Matthew 16, 15 to 19, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. With the time I have left in this particular lesson, let's do a quick outline of Matthew. Part one of Matthew speaks of the birth and growth of the king. His miraculous conception, although his birth itself is very normal. Then you have the forerunner of the king. Who is that? Well, we know it's John the Baptist, very clearly. And he helps to prepare the way of the king as a forerunner. It's called the baptism of Jesus, where for the first time to our knowledge ever, the triune God makes a public appearance just before Jesus commences his ministry. You have God the Son in the Jordan River. You have the Holy Spirit represented as a dove coming on Jesus, anointing him, so to speak, or representing the anointing on him. And then you have God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then you have the preparation of Jesus, not just his baptism, but his temptation in the wilderness. It's amazing. He pleased God, and yet the Holy Spirit drove him into the Judean wilderness to be fasting 40 days and 40 nights and tempted of the devil, and thank God he passed the test, and you know what? So can you as well. And then Jesus begins his ministry. He calls his first disciples and ministers in Galilee, all in Matthew 4, and then he gives, as I often say, the most famous sermon in the world in history, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And then he begins his ministry in all earnest. He delegates, he dispatches apostles, they are instructed, but already with the popularity that Jesus engenders, so is the rejection and the, how should we say it, opposition. He is rejected by his generation. He's rejected by three cities. He seems to be momentarily rejected even by John the Baptist. Are you the one we're supposed to look for, or do we look 
for another. He is rejected by the Pharisees, especially disputing about the Sabbath. And then, after he's rejected, he starts to give parables. Parables shed light to those who are following Jesus, but they actually obscure truth for those that reject him. And then he gets rejected again in Nazareth by Herod, by scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. This is chapters 13 to 16. And then he talks about his kingdom of God program, and he teaches on faith, about his own death, about taxes. This is in chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and 20. He teaches about things that cause offense, forgiveness, divorce, wealth, his own death again, and even ambition. He then causes two blind men to see, chapter 20. He's welcomed rapturously in Jerusalem as the son of David. Well, he is son of David. He is the coming king. But this causes his enemies to become even more livid with jealousy, envy, and rage. He has a collision with Herodians, Pharisees, priests, elders, Sadducees, and he describes his opposition as vipers, as hypocrites, and then he weeps over Jerusalem. He teaches in chapters 24 and 25 about his second coming, signs of the times, last day's events, end of the world, even what happens when he returns. He's going to judge the sheep and the goat nations. And then in chapter 26, he has his last supper. He is then arrested in Gethsemane. His passion begins. He is crucified in chapter 27. He's buried. And then, of course, chapter 28, the disciples not only discover an empty tomb, but they bump in to the resurrected Jesus, who in Galilee gives them the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, this concludes the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. Starting in our very next program, we're going to begin the verse-by-verse commentary. Friends, don't miss it. You will learn about the genealogy in a way that will inspire you and bless you in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Gospel of Matthew and this introduction that we've had. Help us now to attend clearly and fervently to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And Lord, we thank you. We're going to learn wondrous things about this Gospel. We're going to put them into practice. We're going to build our lives on the rock. Through Christ Jesus the Lord, we pray. Amen. Today's On The Rock was brought to you by Teach All Nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, to download podcasts, view our online store, attend special events, sign up for our teaching newsletter, make a donation to support this ministry, or to invite Dr. Camille to speak, log on to www.tan.org.au or write to us at Post Office Box 493, Mount Waverley 3149. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.